Good afternoon. My name is Karen Sampson Hoffman, and I'd like to welcome you to today's Ask the Expert webcast. Can mental health professionals be ADHD coaches? We are welcoming clinical researcher Dr. Abigail Lavrini, and she's going to present with us. The Ask the Expert webcast is a production of the National Resource Center on ADHD, which gives the general public access to top clinicians, researchers, and other professionals. The National Resource Center is a partnership between CDC and CHAD and serves as the national clearinghouse for the latest evidence-based information on ADHD. A recording of today's broadcast will be available through the National Resource Center on ADHD's website, helpforadhd.org, under Ask the Expert in about two business days. To view the recording sooner, please follow the same link you, you use today to join us, and you will be taken to the recording. The recording will be available in about 30 minutes following our presentation. If you are having difficulties or would like more information on this topic, please contact us. Our phone number is 1-800-233-4050. And we will return your phone call in the next business day. Finally, following today's webcast, a brief survey will appear on your screen. Please take a couple of minutes to let us know what you think and how we can better serve the ADHD community through the Ask the Expert webcast series. It is a privilege to introduce today's guest expert, Dr. Abigail Lavrini. Dr. Lavrini is a licensed clinical psychologist, ADHD specialist, speaker, and author. She earned her doctorate in counseling and school psychology at Florida State University, where she, is, where she was part of the team that spearheaded a now nationally recognized ADHD coaching intervention. Dr. Lavrini has published numerous scientific articles on ADHD and presents her coaching model in professional settings throughout the country. Dr. Lavrini's first book is an American Psychological Association bestseller, Succeeding with Adult ADHD, Daily Strategies to Help You Achieve Your Goals and Manage Your Life, published in 2012. Her second book, ADHD Coaching, a Guide for Mental Health Professionals, was published this month. Dr. Lavrini also stars in the American Psychological Association's therapy video series on adult ADHD treatment. For those of you who would like to ask Dr. Lavrini a question following her presentation, written questions can be submitted in the questions box on your toolbar as indicated by the red arrow shown in this slide. All questions are moderated and we will try to get to as many as possible during the question and answer portion of the webcast. Again, we are very pleased to welcome this evening's guest expert. Dr. Lavrini, if you would like to begin. Thank you, Karen, and thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Um, today, I'd like to, I want to open up just by saying that um, I want you to really consider as you're listening uh, how you can integrate coaching methods into your current practice. So this isn't necessarily a presentation to convince you to change on over to the, the coaching side of things and, and put away all your, your current uh, interventions and techniques and strategies as a therapist, but to think about how you might be able to expand your repertoire. Um, so I just want to open with that question, and I'm going to talk a little bit about the similarities and differences between therapy and coaching, 
Um, and, and you be the judge. Um, I always tell my audience that there are some people that are going to leave thinking that it's kind of the same thing. Some people think it's something different altogether. Um, unfortunately, we don't have a uh, definition quite yet of, of coaching um, that's, that's really recognized by anyone. You're going to get, or everyone, I'm sorry, you're going to get different answers from different people. So um, I have my answer, but yours might be different. So that's just some food for thought as we get started here. So as Karen mentioned, uh, at Florida State University over the past decade or so, they have been rigorously studying a method of ADHD coaching. And in that, they only allow their doctoral level students to conduct this as well as the master's level. But it's within the um, Department of Psychological educa Educational Psychology. So um, it is thought of as a psychological intervention. And that is how I theoretically see it as well. Um, the new book, which we will send you links to um, at the end here, uh, describes the theoretical models in more detail, but essentially we view it as a cognitive behavioral intervention that is um, founded in both that and psychoeducation. And EF, executive function, is a, is a hot topic um, these days, and that's, that's kind of the underlying issue that we, we think of when we think of ADHD coaching. Um, Barkley, who, if you're at all familiar with the world of ADHD, you should be pretty familiar with by now, um, talks about ADHD coaching in terms of a self-regulation deficit. Not so much that these clients don't know what to do. In fact, a lot of them are highly intelligent, um, and we now have that twice exceptional category of gifted and, and ADHD or other disorder, um, but it's it's the maintaining forward progress toward the goals. It's actually taking what you know and putting it into practice on a daily basis that is so tough for these individuals. So that's really what we want to focus on in coaching. So in your current practice, you might know a handful of tips or strategies to give to your clients who have ADHD but unfortunately, that's not enough. They're not going to be able to take those tips and then bring that list home and implement it on their own without some further work. We developed this table here. Um, you can see it's, it's coaching versus CBT. And as you can see on the left side, the majority um, are congruent with both. So you have things like case conceptualization and psychoeducation, um, goal setting, prioritization, motivation, organizational skills. I'm not going to read them all, but you can read that over on your, your own time a little bit. What I do want to emphasize again, though, is that I think the difference is in how these things are applied. So in CBT, you might typically talk about a lot of these things. Um, and and try to work through them in terms of the cognitive triad and, and things like of that nature. But 
when it comes to setting goals in ADHD coaching, you're really going to focus on those ADHD behaviors and setting goals around those in a positive manner. And you are very much going to work on the motivating factors at, um, behind that. And I'll talk a little bit more about how we do that when we get to kind of the uh, nitty-gritty of coaching. Um, so it's just a difference in, I think, the emphasis played on each of these that, that are under both um, when it comes to that part. Now, we do focus primarily on academic skills when it comes to children and adolescents, I would say. Um, I do a lot of coaching myself with adults, and so they're out of school, and it, it tends to be more life management um, and lifestyle-related goals. And then in coaching, what we want to do is, although uh, all the people who work for me and obviously you, if you want to integrate coaching, are a mental health therapist, sometimes if a client is dealing with an extreme comorbidity, we want to refer out so that that other issue can be dealt with um, and have enough time even in a session to deal with it because it's difficult to address both coaching goals and some of those more complex comorbidities. Now, when it comes to mild depression and anxiety, that's basically to be expected. Um, one of the reasons I feel very strongly that mental health therapists should be coaching is because I rarely see a client, even a young one, who hasn't had some sort of repercussion in, uh, as a result of their ADHD symptoms, albeit whether it's low self-esteem, depression, anxiety, uh, all those types of things. So it, it doesn't exist in a vacuum. It's, it's kind of impossible to in address those executive skills and then say, well, let's leave the emotional part um, and all that other stuff um, off the table. So you have to be able to pull in uh, your, your other methods. So those other methods might be, on the right side, some of your CBT stuff. You might do some mindfulness training. You might do some cognitive restructuring around the behaviors that you're addressing in the coaching. You might do emotional regulation, um, all those other things, uh, or deal with family dynamics that, that go along with CBT. So some basic rules for coaching is that this is a collaborative process. A coach is not a teacher or parent. That being said, coaching tends to be more directive, I would say, in general than CBT. Um, so you want to, it's a give and take with your client in terms of pulling answers from them. You don't want to necessarily provide the answers, but you do want to model that linear thinking. You want to help them come to the answers. If you let an ADHD client um, just free associate or um, try to kind of uh, just speak from what, what they're feeling, you're not going to accomplish anything. So it kind of goes against those general rules that you're initially taught as a therapist to kind of let your client lead you. Um, you need to, to lead them because, like I said, little will get accomplished if you don't. So um, that, that's, that's kind of a tricky, par um, tricky area to, uh, 
to approach sometimes. Now, I did have in one presentation, I had an um, uh, audience member say that, you know, I, you know, I've been a baseball coach for 20 years, and I have to say the coaching is not a collaborative experience. You know, I just tell the client what to do, or the, the um, in this case, the, uh, the uh, um, you know, athletic person what to do, and, um, and they have to do it. And I brought up a um, issue that was going on um, back in the early '90s when I was in high school, and they were—I was a soccer player. And what was going on then was they were basically teaching the uh, the girl soccer players to play the same way the boy soccer players were playing. Um, and as a result, we encountered a lot of uh, knee injuries in girls. So I said, you know, maybe a good what a, what a good coach does do is focus on individual strengths and weaknesses, and they do listen to their players or their clients more. Um, so maybe it should be a little bit more collaborative and not just teaching one way to do everything. So that's something to think about too. And then that motivation piece you can see there at the bottom is a critical part of coaching. Um, again, I'll talk about this in detail, but it's not so much, I mean, if there's one thing you want to take away is this is not about providing uh, to-do lists and strategies and, and task lists for your client. Um, it is really about that self-regulation piece and teaching them how to stay motivated. So this is just a taste of um, kind of how to conduct the intervention were you to use the, the general outline of the intervention in your practice. Um, what we want to do is first set long-term goals. And I always use, I always go back to this um, metaphor of a house. And I ask my clients every time, the first time I meet with them, is what is the most important part when you're building a house? And most people get it right, and that's the foundation. What clients with ADHD tend to do is try to put up walls before building that solid foundation. So that's the kind of, oh, I heard that if you, uh, you know, put this, your stuff in the same place every time, then you're just fine. And uh, I have all these, you know, I've read this book and I, I know what to do, so I'm going to just start trying these strategies. And what ultimately happens is the walls fall down, the house falls down. So what you need to do first is develop a goal that is the following, specific, measurable, action-driven, realistic, time-sensitive. You've probably heard of SMART. That's the, the well-known acronym. I add the letter P to the end. So what that means is making a goal process-based rather than outcome-based. Think of a student who uh, wants to get an A in a class, but um, when they, if they're bright and have ADHD, what tends to happen often is they can procrastinate. They can put it off. They can experience a lot of anxiety around that. And then they can, at the very last minute, write a really stellar paper, and they can get an A. So their process was awful. Now, on the flip side of that, sometimes um, there can be a student who really tries and works hard and maintains that motivation and diligently works, and they just don't get that A for some reason because they weren't you know, on top all the time. And then they're disappointed. So when you're writing a goal, you want to 
base it on their process, you know, base it on following through with daily assignments according to a schedule, so on and so forth. Um, because that is what's going to help the self-esteem when they focus on their process rather than their outcomes. Now, um, the next piece of that um, would be, and we go into this in great detail, but because of our time limitations tonight, I'm not going to talk about it, is developing weekly objectives in relation to those goals. So that when you're in session, you're really helping the client to develop a plan for outside of the session. That's really the majority of the work is how did the previous week go? What steps did you take towards meeting the goal? Um, where were your roadblocks? Um, where were you successful? Why were you successful? And then let's develop some objectives for this coming week in order to uh, help you get that next step towards your long-term goal. So um, without going into too much there, these are just some specific strategies. Now, I know I just talked a lot of it about um, how it's important not just to give a laundry list of specific strategies, but at the same time, they will come into play in relation to your goals. So you don't want to just give a list and send a client on their way, but if you're dealing with my management goal, let's say, you might want to talk about what timer they're going to use and when they're going to use it and how they're going to use it. Um, so there's lots of really unique tools out there. Timetimer.com is one. This one picture is the cube timer. It's a really simple, just um, turn it over and it starts counting down from a particular time. Um, you can do life wheels. If you're a therapist that's done a, a traditional life wheel, you can turn that into an ADHD life wheel and have the client um, rate their, their, their life in terms of their ADHD symptoms, in terms of where they are, where they'd like to be, and it's a way of measuring um, progress. And um, on that note, I think learning style is a really important thing to understand because you don't want to start trying strategies for a client who is highly auditory, um, an auditory learner, and you're working with flashcards and visual things. So um, you really want to get an understanding of how they learn best, um, when they were successful, why were they successful, what strategies were helpful to them. Um, so those are all, um, I'm not going to go into these again where um, I probably should be stopping about here, uh, but I'm happy to answer questions about any of these um, or, you know, shoot me an email or anything like that. So finally, I just wanted to, um, I guess, put out the, the for further reading or learning <laughs> um, places that you might want to go. Um, as Karen mentioned, there's the um, a new book out that is, is just out. It's in pre-order right now um, for a pretty good price on Amazon. And uh, that was published with the American Psychological Association. It's called ADHD Coaching, A Guide for Mental Health Professionals. Um, the first book is uh, a self-help book. So it's kind of the flip side of that. So if you have clients that are looking for some uh, strategies, it, it breaks down the intervention from a client perspective, from a self-help perspective, and it does it in little tidbits. We actually break it up so that an individual with ADHD could easily swallow a couple minutes at a time uh, and not find the book too overwhelming. And then finally, the uh, 
APA video actually shows um, Dr. Francis Pravat and I, who um, is uh, at, at Florida State University and a big part of this um, treatment, um, working with a client with ADHD. It was a, you know a, a real person, a real client um, that we were totally blind to, and we work this intervention in an hour-long session, and then and then answer some questions from some colleagues and students. So um, any of those you might be interested in checking out if you want to get a little bit more information on this. So with that, I will, uh, I guess, hand it on over to your, your questions. All right, and our questions are coming in. And now is a good time to start submitting them. You can go ahead and submit them now on the question box on your screen to the left. And also, you'll notice that in the message field, uh, we have posted some links to the book and the video that Dr. Lavrini has mentioned. So you can take note of that. If anyone has any additional questions on how to find those books, please let us know and we can get you links. So our first question uh, comes from one of our professionals. And she was wondering, uh, she says that many of her clients often lack follow-through, which we know is part of the disorder, one of the symptoms of the disorder of ADHD. What if they do not do their session homework or if they forget the tools that were discussed? How can we make progress if they don't do the session homework, don't follow the tools? That's a perfect question because I was just thinking how I forgot to weave in the motivation piece. <laughs> so thank you for asking that. Um, what we do is when we are developing our weekly objectives, you want to brainstorm and record with your client a corresponding reward and or consequence. Because internal motivation, as lovely as it is in terms of, you know, your client's going to say, oh, well, it's just going to feel so good to get that done. It's not going to happen, unfortunately. So that self-regulatory piece, since it's missing, we want to kind of dangle a little carrot. And then we're going to, as we move along, they're going to gain um, some, some motivation and you're going to talk about that self-regulatory piece. But it might, you might always need to do um, some, some things in terms of rewards and consequences. Now, a couple of things here I want to mention. If you're working with a highly anxious client, uh, you might want to hold off on the consequences, especially because a lot of times it's just seen as something else that they need to do. And in fact, a reward can often be seen that way too. So you need to be careful. So my advice when it comes to rewards and consequences are to, one, make it as easy as possible. Take it out of their hands as much as possible. I've had clients to set up automatic um, deductions. So I've had clients who give, have a bank uh, set to give to a particular charity on a certain day, and they have to go in and turn it off once they have completed their objective. So making it as automatic as possible and thinking of as many things as you can. Sometimes it might even involve the support of a family member or friend. That's okay. That's a good strategy. Um, and, and then being mindful of knowing when to use that strategy is, is a win. So um, things like that. Um, getting creative. So try to think outside the box and not 
just use things like cell phone, you know, if it's a kid, you know, I'm taking away your cell phone, your TV, you know, all those typical things. Um, get a little bit creative in terms of what you can use. I've used this example tons of times, but I still love it. So um, one example I have here is an old, old client now who uh, had a neighbor who had a, several um, unattractive lawn ornaments spread throughout her lawn, and they were friends, but the, one, the client did not like these um, in the next-door neighbor's lawn. So they actually worked together, and her friend would remove one every time she met a weekly objective. And on the flip side, if she did not meet her weekly objective, she had to put one of those in her, her own yard. So they made a, the process really fun, really creative, and kind of gave her that extra support to put out of her hands. So those are just a couple of pieces of advice um, in terms of those. But you have to make sure that you are, are really recording these, and this isn't just an idea for the end of the session. And in fact, um, one thing I didn't mention is the new book, with the purchase of that, you get actually what we were really adamant about doing this is they've created a website link to you can download all the forms and paperwork we use. So we are on a weekly basis literally writing, client will complete this objective, they have this reward and this consequence to keep them accountable, they're going to complete it by this date. So we're reviewing those initially at the beginning of every session. Okay, thank you. I think that's very helpful. And again, the book uh, link is available, and it's going to be available for another couple minutes, and then we'll take that back down. Um, our next question is coming from Kelly, and she is asking if is coaching something that can be done in a group therapy format. So can, is this something that's only one-on-one, -on -one or can this be done with a small group? Um, I would keep it small. I think with all groups, um, one, it's, it's tricky because participation can always be spotty. There's a lot of struggles, I think, that come with groups in general. But if you can get, um, especially when it comes to ADHD, you know, you want people to show up at the same time. Um, if you can get a group together that has similar goals, I think the, the best type of group to try to work this with might be a um, student group of younger students with academic type goals and working on goals such as time management and organization because then they can kind of brainstorm and check with each other on whether or not they were using their planner correctly, um, if they organized their space, they can share pictures of spaces that were organized, um, things like that. So. That would probably be my best recommendation. I don't do that in a group setting just because of the struggles that I did mention in terms of kind of getting uh, ongoing participation um, at, a, at a good rate, but, but you could certainly try it in that regard. Okay, thank you. Well, our next question is coming now from Natalie, and you may have already touched a little bit on this, but she was wondering, what strategies have you found to be helpful with clients who have both ADHD and avoidance issues? So do we mean avoidance in terms of avoiding working towards a goal? I guess I'm not sure what we're talking about. Is it like motivation? That 
I think it's no, I think it would be motivation or um, the the desire to kind of avoid something that is uncomfortable, growth and learning new skills, no matter how necessary and how much you might look forward to them, can be an uncomfortable situation. Natalie didn't give us any specifics in her question, but I think that's kind of where she was going. Okay. Um, I think when I first, when I hear that, I, I kind of think we're talking about the same thing, that, that part of ADHD is, is that tendency to avoid. Um, so it's kind of redundant almost. Um, so that's where I think the, well, I guess there's, there's another answer I would give. Um, I think one thing to consider is the, the sweet, what I call the sweet spot. So when you're developing weekly objectives with clients, their emotional response, their physiological response to suggestions that you're coming up with in terms of the weekly objectives and their comfort level, I always start out with very, very small, quote-unquote, baby steps with the weekly objectives at the beginning, especially because you want clients to just start to feel successful. Um, as you know, with CBT, it's that connection between what they're thinking and feeling and doing. So um, you want to make sure it doesn't really matter so much in the first couple of weeks really what they're accomplishing. It's just that they can be successful and they can start to see that it's going to work for them and that it can work for them. Um, so when you build on these successes, I think that, um, you know, self-esteem uh, can be increased and they'll tend to avoid less because they'll see that, oh, I did something a little bit uncomfortable and I was successful. That's another really great thing about using documentation such as our weekly objective sheets because, and you know, you don't have to use mine. You can you make your own. Um, but, but it's just, it's a, it's a diary almost of their, um, their progress because the, the working memory is not so strong in most of these individuals. So it's a way for them to look back and you to look back and review with them hey, you were successful here. You did it once. And especially when they start to falter, and, and they will, um, they can look back and say, you know, I, I can do this. I can get back on the horse and, and keep going here. Okay, thank you. I, I think that's uh, what she was looking for. Well, our next okay. question is coming from Donna. And she says that you mentioned the juggling exercise, and she was wondering if you could explain that a little further. Sure. Yeah, I'm happy to. Um, the juggling exercise is one thing that we do in kind of the psychoeducational phase of coaching, which is really at the, at the beginning. And depending on how much education your client has had around ADHD, you uh, may need to do more or less psychoeducation with them. But um, I was talking about learning styles earlier. And I often find that my ADHD clients are really strong in kinesthetic learning. And that's, you know, learning by doing. Um, so the juggling exercise is, and I'll do this in presentations too, um, you might have even done it, you know, or seen this happen in kind of one of those, you know, trust workshop work kind of things. But um, it's, it's basically teaching, uh, teaching about why... Uh, an individual with ADHD struggles to kind of 
well, literally, I guess, or, or not literally, but, but the exercise literally keep their balls in the air. So what we'll do is we will have a, typically this is a, a kid or a teen, but adults can have fun with this too, but typically we'll hand them a ball and we'll say, okay, throw the ball up in the air and, and, and grab it. And that's pretty easy, right? And then you give them two, and most people can do that. You give them three. I can't do it, but I know some others can. Um, but it's starting to get a little bit tougher. So the lesson here is that the more balls you're throwing into the air, the more difficult it is to track them, to keep them up, and catch them. So it's just a fun psychoeducational kinesthetic learning tool, and there are tons more of those um, to teach them about you know, why it's so common to, to forget about um, that appointment that you had because you were thinking about, um, you know, the, the dinner plans that you had to go to the next night. Are we still there? I am still there. So sorry. Okay. Our next okay. question is coming from Nina. Oh, no problem. Um, sometimes the switches don't always switch. I know many members of our audience can relate to that. Well, our next question is from Nina, and she's wondering what ADHD coach training programs do you recommend? Um, there are a few out there. Uh, I. I Honestly, to tell you the truth, I don't, because I come from the clinical psychology uh, perspective on this, um, basically the, the training, and the, the reason that we wrote this book is to have a um, empirically based intervention that mental health therapists can use. Now, there are other coach trainings, um, but... Um, there's a ADHD, ACO, ADHD Coaches Organization, um, and we actually, you know, we mentioned those in the book, but as far as I know, those are basically for anybody um, who wants, who's interested in coaching, so they don't really take a mental health spin like our intervention does. And that's where at the beginning I was saying that you could ask um, five different coaches, their definition of coaching, and you'll probably get five different answers. And it kind of depends on who you ask, where they came from, where they trained. So um, I'm a little bit biased. I do think that the, the, best, um, the best training you're going to get is, is reading this book that we developed. Um, and it's, like I said, based on over a decade of research now. And so we feel really, really good about that. Um, but like I said, there are some, some programs out there, and I know some very good coaches and well-respected coaches that have gone through them. I just don't know enough about them um, to really say one way or another. Okay. Well, thank you. I think that's a question a lot of people have. Again, uh, they are with us today because they want to learn more about coaching. Well, our next question is coming from Kelly, and she asks, well, she, she says that she has clients who perform well, well academically when they have support, like when they have their parents monitoring their homework. So she works mm -hmm. with young people and, and young adults monitoring their homework. Um, but when the support is removed, they don't, have, they don't make use of the strategies they've learned. And she was wondering, what makes this approach, what makes your approach 
uh, different so clients can apply it when they are no longer being coached? Well, I think I think when it comes to a lot of parenting techniques, um, that really what it is is a parent ends up being the executive function for the child, unfortunately. Um, they don't want their child to fail. fail. They're emotionally vested in that. Um, so it's, it's more of a kind of hovering and leading approach rather than a coaching approach. Um, in coaching, I'm not going to sit down with my client and make sure they get their homework done, but I'm going to um, do everything I can to set up the strategies. One of the most important things to, ha to do is to have a constant conversation with your client about how they're going to use these strategies when you're done working with them. Um, and so they can start to imagine different scenarios that they might be able to find the tools helpful. Um, I refer to what we're doing throughout coaching as building a metaphorical toolbox. Um, and it goes really well with my, my foundation metaphor. But um, so what we're trying to do is develop strategies that you can use in various situations that you find helpful. So if they meet an, an objective, um, you know, what, what was it that made you be successful there? And what other situation could you imagine yourself in that you could use that in a similar way? Um, I even literally have clients write these ideas down on index cards and then have them sometimes, especially the younger ones, make a box, like bring in a shoe box or something, make a box. This is your toolbox so that they can bring these ideas out later after, after we're finished. So like I said, I think a lot of times it's, with parents, it's just falling into let's get this done, I'm going to help you get it done, and not really talking about how are you going to approach new situations and unique situations as they arise and use these strategies in new and unique ways. Well, following on the idea of un new and unique ways of, of strategies, Cameron was wondering if you use the telephone when you are coaching your clients. And we also know that there are some coaches who coach through Skype and other video-based um, messaging, calling systems. He was wondering, do you do that, and, and do you see a benefit to it? I do. Um, in fact, um, we we have we have in-person sessions, which uh, because the coaching is a CBT model, we are able to um, bill as a, as a therapy. But as most of you probably know, um, the insurance companies haven't really caught up with technology. And uh, unless you're face-to-face -face in the same room with a client, we have a hard time getting reimbursement. Um, but we do offer it, uh, just not as, a, not as a mental health therapy um, per se. Uh, I use a platform called BC, in case any of you are interested. That's V as in Victor, and then C, like, like seeing, S as in Sam, EE.com. And it is just like Skype, except it is HIPAA compliant. So uh, we like that added protection in there. Um, I, I personally do a lot of, I actually coach nationwide um, on VC. And I like it um, because uh, one of the things I really like is seeing my own reaction, to be honest. 
Um, so when a client has a success and whatnot, um, I get to kind of gauge myself a little bit. I have a constant mirror being held up to myself as well um, in addition to seeing themselves. Uh, self. So another advantage is that you get to see their personal space. Um, you can, they can, you know, not only talk about what they need organized in their home, and if we do in-office sessions, we'll have them, they can send pictures and stuff. There's ways to get around that too. But, you know, they can kind of show you around and, and give you the tour um, on, the, on the camera. So I think it, it works really well. Um, I, I don't use the telephone unless I absolutely have to just because I like having that visual. Um, but I know some coaches do check-ins. I know, co you know coaches who do texting and phone and, and all those things. What we need to be wary of, though, as mental health professionals is, you know, that we have that code of ethics and we need to make sure we're not violating any of, of those, those things um, in terms of boundaries and whatnot. So we have to perform a little bit differently than a coach who, who is not bound by those things. Okay, thank you so much. I know that was a question a lot of people have had. Well, our next question now is from Anne, and she was wondering if you could please expound on the inspirational toolbox that you mentioned earlier. Um, sure, I'll, tr I'll try to kind of take you through step by step. So if you want to make an inspirational toolbox with a client, have a stack of index cards. Um, and I work at a table as opposed to in in a couple of chairs because we're often pulling out papers and whatnot. So have a stack of index cards on your table. And then when you're having your session with your client and they say, you know, I was really successful um, um, when, well, here, I'll give you an example I had the other day of somebody. Um, he was noticing that we were talking about paying attention to your physio physiological responses to, and this is going into CBT, to um, anxiety and identifying when you're starting to get in that, that negative headspace. And he said, you know what? I just realized that I start talking out loud to myself. I start saying that I'm stupid and I'm not capable. And I literally say these words out loud. And that's kind of a sign to me that I'm, you know, headed in the wrong direction and I need to pull out my stop sign and start reframing things. So that would be an example of something that you could write. You could write down on an index card when you start talking out loud to yourself um, and, you know, having negative self-talk out loud, it is time to, uh, you know, pull out the stop sign and reframe and move forward in a positive direction. Um, I mentioned that, that memory is, is, a, is an executive skill that is not strong with ADHD. So even though we had that aha moment, it's likely he's going to forget it um, in a few weeks. So what the inspirational toolbox does is when you write it on that index card and he puts it in the box, that's something on occasion that needs to be pulled out and reviewed, all the things that helped him to be successful at different times throughout the coaching process. So it might be that. It might be... Um, using a whiteboard for to list just the top two daily tasks um, for the day was really helpful. Or um, sometimes I'll have people um, write notes on their their bathroom mirror, and that might be really helpful for somebody. 
something as simple as having a workout buddy. I got my butt to the gym because I had a workout buddy. Just making, logging all those successes and what was good about them um, will be helpful. And that, that also ties into that piece of um, then being able to pull those out in new situations because they might find themselves in a different situation, pull those out and say, hey, I can use this one there in this way. So I hope that was a little bit more clear explanation for you. I think it was. I think that was very helpful. And Kindle, ha Kindle has a question that follows right up on that. And she was wondering, how hands-on should you be with your clients? Or, um, and she gives examples such as setting up calendars and time management help. And she also was wondering, do you know any sites that link tasks into Google Calendars? Um, I'll answer the, the first one. Um, I believe Google has a uh, an app that I'm sure links into their calendar because it's theirs as well called To Do. Um, I think it's just To Do, T-O-D-O. -O. Um, you can look at that one. I'm sure there are others. Um, now, technology is another topic probably for another day, but um, you also have to be careful with that because uh, some clients will work well with technology. Some clients won't work well with technology. Some, some will ignore it. Um, some will lose their phones. We also know uh, that the research shows us that by writing things down, it tends to get locked in our memory more effectively than if we're just plugging it into a phone or something. So I have clients who start to ignore buzzers and bells and alarms on their phones because they have so many. It just becomes like background noise. So you need to be careful there. Um, actually, on that note, I'm kind of going off here. But on that note, keep in mind that there's not going to be, uh, and that's why, why I call it a toolbox, is there's not going to be a silver bullet. A lot of clients come in, and especially in this day of medication, they come in saying, I just need to figure out the strategy that works for me um, in order to be successful. They might find a strategy that works for them for a while, but due to the nature of ADHD, um, it's not going to work forever. That does not mean it was not helpful. It means that you have to keep things fresh you, fresh, you have to switch them up. So you have to have multiple tools um, for the same job, so to speak. Um, so that's just another, another little aside there. In terms of how hands-on to be, um, I think very hands-on. And obviously, you want to, um, at first, be a little more hands-on and then little by little back off and have your clients take on more. But I do have clients come in and pull out their planner, and we are literally working through the plan of the week um, and when what is going to occur. A lot goes into that conversation, like realistically estimating time. Um, one of the first things I have people do is to, in retrospect, record their, their uh, week because a lot of times when they estimate something's going to take an hour, it takes two or three hours. So it gives them some insight into how long things really take. Um, if you're over scheduling yourself, of course you're going to be frustrated um, at the end of the week. 
So a lot goes into that discussion. Um, and so I do think it's very important to be hands-on because you need to don't assume that your client knows how to use a planner effectively. Um, it's not something we teach in schools. You know, why would they? So um, you need to be a little hands-on in kind of first developing those skills, and then you can back off little by little as they um, are able to move forward on their own. Okay, thank you so much. Um, Natalie has a question that also goes a little bit along with that, with the previous one, and she was wondering um, how she would like to know more about documenting the rewards and consequences. You mentioned this earlier in your presentation, and she was wondering how do you track those? How do you involve the client? She says her clients want to do it online, but she's concerned that the chart might get lost. Um. So in terms of tracking, it is all written out on our weekly objective sheets. I do, I do two things. At first, at the outset, we do a brainstorm of possible rewards and consequences so we can keep kind of a running list of ideas. Um, you could always add to that as you go along. And then on a weekly basis, on the actual sheet, corresponding, so there's a column for the objective. There's a column for when that objective is going to be completed, and then there's a column divided in two for the corresponding reward and the corresponding consequence. So it's always there. Now, for a client who wants to do this online, I like to use um, Google Docs, as long as you're not worried about um, HIPAA if you're working not under, um, a, you know, as a, as a therapist. But I, I know there's also, you can do that with, with protective information, too. Um, and so, I, if I work online uh, with a client, I'll pull up that document during the session. And the great thing about Google Docs and similar programs is that it's live. So if I write in something on my end, they're seeing it on their end, and so on and so forth. So you can go back and forth until you guys get to a place where you're comfortable and complete that together. And then you have, you have shared access to it, so you don't have to worry about it being lost. Okay, I think that's that's very helpful, and uh, there are, in addition to Google Docs, I believe there are some other um, programs out there and websites that might mm -hmm. be useful. Well, we have a question now from Joyce, and she says, you mentioned that your coaching approach is empirically based, but she sees a lot of similarities between this and what is done in ADHD-focused practices that are informed by the research on executive functioning. She wants to know, what is it that is different about what your group is doing? Um, well, it's hard to say what the differences are if I don't know exactly what um, similarities that you're, you're necessarily referring to. Um, it, it is based in executive function um, and, and CBT and psychoeducation. So I just, I'm sorry, I don't know exactly how to answer that question um, other than if I knew exactly what, what similarities you were referring to, I would be able to kind of pinpoint and pull out what we do in addition. I've been told at presentations we have similarities to models I've never heard of. Um, there's just so many out there today for different, you know, trauma groups and, and whatnot. Um, so there's going to be many overlaps, many similarities. There's only so many things you can do. Um, but 
like I said, in, unless I really see, um, I wouldn't be able to necessarily pull out, and I'm, and I'm not sure even exactly what model you're, you're referring to. Um, so I apologize. I can't answer that one a little more um, clearly for you. That's all right. That's all right. Uh, we are still getting in a few more questions. We've got a little bit more time before we reach the top of the hour. And we have a question now from Kelly. And she wants to know, do you work with a client for a prescribed period of time or a certain number of sessions, or is this a more open-ended approach? That's a really good question. And uh, that's a question I think, too, again, you will get different answers from different people. Some people even have package deals and things like that. Um, I don't believe in that. Um, and, but I can, I can tell you kind of what generally happens. So I tell people to start thinking in terms of they, you know, make any decisions. But if you have a younger client who is primarily struggling with academic-based goals, um, then eight weeks you might be able to make some serious headway and uh, lead them to, to, to move on if they really just don't have those executive skills yet and that's really what you're focusing on. I find that the older the client, the longer it typically goes, and it tends to depend a lot on the um, kind of social-emotional effects of ADHD. So when you're dealing with a comorbid depression or anxiety and this client has had this negative self-talk for the majority of their life, maybe they're newly diagnosed as an adult and they didn't even really understand. So they develop all these habits and, um, you know, it influenced them in a variety of ways. They might have encountered divorce or job loss and a variety of things. Then it gets a little bit more complex and you might be working on a goal for a longer period of time. I even um, find that I kind of tend to vacillate from um, coaching sessions to kind of pulling more back into my role as a traditional therapist if that's where the client is that week. And they're just not, I can see it's clear that we need to, we need to do that. Um, so based on your training, um, you can make that decision. Um, and then in those cases, I've, you know, I've, I've clients that I've worked with for, for years now. Um, and then some clients come back when they, when they need, um, you know, help on a new goal or some new strategies or some refreshing, they might come back. And, and that's okay. That's kind of just the nature of it. Okay. Well, we are down to our last two questions. And our first one, both of the questions have to do with working with young people. And the first one is from Nyman. And he was one, he works with a teenager who is kind of defiant about planning anything and about using the paper or pen approach. He was wondering if you had any hints on how to help this young person who's just a, a little bit difficult, a little bit defiant on these things. Well, you hit on why I prefer working with adults. Um, <laughs> I, uh, it's really, really hard in any, any therapeutic modality to make forward progress when, especially if this kid is there because his parents want him to be there and he doesn't want to be there. Um, so sometimes it means pulling back 
and just refocusing on developing that that relationship and that rapport and that trust so that the client starts to um, want the things for himself. There's things you can do, I think, to help reluctant teens. One of the things you can do is have a conversation about what a coach is. A lot of teens play sports, and if you if you open up that door and you say, well, would you ever imagine playing just going out there and trying to play a sport for the first time or by yourself? I mean, that's silly. Why would you do that? Um, and what does a coach do? He's there to guide you. He's there to um, hone your skills and, and see your strengths and make those stronger, see your weaknesses and, and um, turn those around a little bit. So... If you have that conversation, uh, and that's why I love the word coaching, um, it's a little bit easier to digest for kids, I think, than therapy. Um, so, so have that conversation and, and see what they do with that um, and, and make it a little bit more experiential. Um, you know, and maybe this kid, you just haven't hit on um, what his interests are and what his strengths are, and, and you need to dig a little deeper on that too. Okay, thank you so much. This is our last question, and it follows very neatly into the previous one. Felicia was wondering, what strategies would you use when working with children and not when you were working with an adult? And the, and the flip side of it, what would you use with adults that you wouldn't use with children? I think with kids, you know, piggybacking on what I said before, I think it's important to make it fun. Um, things like the juggling exercise and um, things like that to develop that psychoeducational piece are very important. Um, and figuring out their currency, you know, everybody has a currency, right? So in terms of motivation, what do they like? What motivates them? How, let them come up with the ideas. I think a lot of times kids come in and parents, are quick to say that, this, that I've done that reward or that consequence and that doesn't work with my kid. Well, one thing that was probably happening is that the parent was setting the standard, setting the rules. Another thing that might have happened is that the parent didn't set it up that way. He just took something away in the heat of the moment um, to punish the child. So empower the kid. Let him come up with the ideas. Um, let him initiate his reward or consequence, um, and then have fun with it. I think those are really important factors. Um, with adults, I, again, don't underestimate the emotional effects of ADHD. I just got a call from a lady who uh, was flabbergasted because she's working with a therapist who said to her, um, she was recently diagnosed with ADHD, and he said, well, let's work on the depression first and then we'll deal with the ADHD. And she goes like, what? And, and that's kind of, you know, kind of how I feel that, that you know, it, it's really sometimes difficult to untangle, uh, you know, which came first. But, but many a times the ADHD has led to these symptoms because these people are constantly failing, being told they're failures, being told they're stupid, lazy and crazy, you know. And... Um, and so you don't want to underestimate 
how that has impacted the other aspects of their life. It's not just executive function in terms of I need to be better organized and manage my time better. It flows through all aspects of life, and that's relationships and um, jobs and family and emotions and everything. Okay. Well, thank you. I think this has been very helpful. It's been very detailed, which many of our participants have been looking forward to. And we're so glad that all of you were able to join us today. We're so glad, Dr. Lorini, you were able to join us. For our, audience members, we hope, for our audience members, we hope you've enjoyed this presentation. Please take a moment to send us your feedback through the survey that will appear on your screen at the end of this webcast. And also, we hope that you'll be able to join us for our next webcast, and that is on Tuesday, June 23rd at 1 o'clock Eastern Time. We will be welcoming Dr. Tiffany Sanders, who will share some ideas for family adventures and activities during the summer when one or more children have ADHD. You can register now at helpforadhd.org or on the CHAD website at chad.org slash askthexpert. Thank you again for participating in today's uh, webcast. Dr. Lavrini, thank you. To our audience, thank you for joining us. And we hope you enjoy the rest of your evening. This does conclude our webcast. <laughs>